to read Zacchaeus, you have to put it in context of the gospel of Luke, mm-hmm. right? Luke's gospel has an unrelenting uh, focus on economics. He just, he just leans in heavy mm-hmm. compared to the other gospels, all of them. Jesus clearly in all the gospels identifies with the poor and serves them in particular and came up from a poor Galilean community himself. Right. Um, so it's not a question, but, but Luke's gospel, it's just like a ongoing unrelenting theme. I've been saying to folks, it's funny because I don't know if you've been hearing some of it, but there's been some of this stuff about, Oh, well that's Marxism. And, uh, I'm like Marxism. Have you read like Luke mm. or like mm. the gospel or uh, the letter of James or something like these are vicious, <laughs> right? Um, Jesus has a vicious class consciousness um, in constantly critiquing the wealthy for hoarding, right? And for identifying the poor, not just the poor in spirit, but the poor themselves as being a characteristic, a condition Mm -hmm. um, that is characteristic to the kingdom of God. And so it's really interesting, number one, just when you frame that out, the context of where the Zacchaeus story is coming out of. And you see this kind of theme of jubilee, this jubilee ethic, which reviving from like Leviticus, right? This idea where redistribution and yeah. reparation and get returning yeah. lands Every and seven monies years, yeah. and fresh start, right? Um, that happens, this kind of deliverance that unfolds. It's madness, isn't it? All of this stuff happening around us. Arguments on Facebook, arguments on Twitter, arguments at home, arguments about school and coronavirus and racism and the church and so, so, so many things. It is maddening. It's maddening to me anyway. And I don't know what to do with it. I literally drive home from work every day. Got about an hour drive. And I just run things through my head. What could I have done differently? When I see something, did I say something? When I'm witnessing things, what am I witnessing? How am I a part of this and how can I maybe repair it? And possibly am I the one breaking it? So the history of race in the church is complicated, extremely so. Megan and I talked about that a bit last week. And this week I brought on Drew Hart. Drew's a brilliant professor. And his work, like this last book, Who Will Be a Witness, is like 300 page of goodness and gold. And you need to get it. If you're a patron supporter of the show at the read this book level, You got that in the mail, hopefully this week, except for the handful of you that are not in the country and it will come as soon as it comes. And I'm sorry for that. But it is that good of a text. Like it needs to be read and you'll hear Drew and I joke. We wish that it didn't need to be read and that it didn't need to be written. And I don't know how to do anything better about that. And I don't know. It's going to require us all to have some really big conversations about what a witnessing voice for the church and for the people in the church, you and I, and people out of the church needs to look for. Like who will be a witness to Christendom? Who will be a witness at white supremacy and religious nationalism? Who will be a prophetic witness? And what does that witness say? Before we get rolling, did something a little different for the month of September. And so at recording, this is September 5th. And so for the next 30 days, I want to take every single dollar that is made through the store of the podcast, and I'm going to donate that money to Black Lives Matter. And I know some of you listening may not agree with me on that, or you may think it's a term that doesn't need to be thrown around, but it's not something I'm interested in arguing in. However, if there's something that you've been on the fence about, if you buy it now, that money is going to things that genuinely matter. As I thought more and more about it, of what I could maybe do with some of the gifts that are freely given to me, that's what I want to do. 
So consider doing that. I don't know which charity yet, but that will be happening in early October. And so here we go. A very powerful testimony of a life rooted in action with Dr. Drew Hart. Dr. Andrew Hart, and that's probably the only time I'm going to say Andrew, because I think you usually go by Drew, correct? Yeah, I go, I go by Drew. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, well, the email says Andrew, so I just wanted to be accurate. But welcome to the show. Very excited to have you here. Your work I have read off and on for many, many years. So I'm very excited to talk with you, but thanks for coming on today. Yeah, I'm glad to be on, on the show with you and to discourse about things that are very relevant for our moment today. And how sad is that, that that's still a conversation that's so relevant, but we'll, we'll yeah. get there. <laughs> we will get I, there. I often do tell folks that, um, I, I look forward to the day where my books are obsolete, obsolete and yeah. no longer meaningful. Right. Yeah. yeah. How great would that be? Yeah. And that's the case for a lot of topics, uh, especially religious and politically based for those that are listening that are like, I don't know who Drew is like, yay, he's on the show. What are the things that kind of make you you if you were to like high level out and you're like, yeah, here's why here's here's kind of what shaped me into whatever you are right now. Yeah, it's hard to give the elevator speech of that, but I would guess um, some of what I would say first, they can think of me as um, a Pennsylvanian boy. I uh, <laughs> bounce back and forth between Philly to Harrisburg, to Philly, to Harrisburg. And so that's, I guess, been a significant part of my life. I am the son of Tony and Carol, right? It's my folk, my parents, and I have siblings, a year older, two years older, nine years younger. I've lived in mostly black communities most of my life, um, except for, and I talk about it in trouble, I've seen um, four year, three years in high school and then four years for college. And so my communities that I've been a part of have deeply shaped me. I currently am an assistant professor of theology, just finished my fourth year of teaching at Messiah University. Mm -hmm. Now we're fancy now, we're not a college anymore. We're you know, <laughs> big time. Aside from the teaching that I do, I am deeply involved in a lot of other work, anti-racism work with churches and other organizations. Um, I collaborate with uh, organizers and activists in my city. And in fact, I'm a co-leader for a group in Harrisburg um, that partners with organizers and activists and connects mm -hmm. them with the church. And so anyway, just a whole yeah. variety of stuff that make me me, I guess. Yeah, no. So my wife's college was Lynchburg College and then um, recently became Lynchburg University. And I went to Liberty University. So now there's two LUs in the same city yeah, there. Yeah. And she got really upset when they made it Lynchburg College. I went Lynchburg University. University. Is there that same animosity there at Messiah? Because honestly, I've always called it Messiah College. I didn't even know it was Messiah University. It just changed. It literally just changed July 1st. Oh, shoot. Okay. Over. So Good. this is new. So most people don't know. Was it a you... big thing though, where people are like, no, it's Messiah College. Like this is um, what it is. Do you know, so here's the funny thing. As an alum, so when I was a student, there was this rumor that they were going to change the name of the school from Messiah College to Grantham University. And people got extremely offended. You're mm. taking Messiah out the name, you know, how <laughs> profane and all this stuff. Anyway, so I think it was just teasing ideas, but people went. So I think that it's still Messiah University. I think most people um, 
probably don't care that much. I don't know. I don't think anybody <laughs> cares that much. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know. My wife did. Um, yeah, she actually, she has refused to buy any merchandise that says alumni on it. Like I have a couple shirts that she gave me that say Lynchburg College and she's got like a blanket and she's like, nobody sleeps in this blanket because I can't get another one. Like these have become artifacts and don't touch my things. Don't break my things. (laughs) So I don't have that affinity towards my alma mater for many reasons, um, which we can talk about at a different time. I wanted to bring you on today. You are extensive and you just referenced it as well. Um, You do a lot of work in anti-racism work, the church theology. So what do you teach at Messiah University? Like, are you teaching that or are you just teaching like general level courses? And then kind of what, if, if you are teaching that like anti-racism type stuff or the, the history of race in the church, what's the feedback from the students? Cause I think most people come yeah. to school and they're like, Oh, I, nobody told me that. Yeah. I teach a range of courses at Messiah college. Um, in fact, it's been kind of neat. Cause I feel like <laughs> I get to express a lot of the different parts of me in different ways. Um, so every fall I teach a course, um, that's not a part of my department teaching. It's a first year seminar course and it's called the politics of blackness. Mm. It's black history and intellectual thoughts, a little theology. So I teach that with first year students. We read, you know, historical texts, black intellectuals, all kinds of stuff. And actually I've had really good experiences with students in that class. I always tweak it a little bit. Uh, just for my own sake, I I mean, yeah. it's a course where I get to read what I want to read with students, right? And so I, there's some common texts that we keep going and other ones that we keep shifting. But uh, yeah, I've had really good experiences with that. I, I teach every fall African-American theology. Mm. Um, and so that's deeply important for me to be able to teach that course. And I've had, I mean, students just rave about that course. And so that's, those two probably are my most popular courses Mm. that I teach. I teach an Anabaptist theology class. I teach a faith in society. All these are gen ed theology options that students can take who are outside of the major. But I teach upper level theology two, theology three, some more standard themes. Um, I still always incorporate some stuff on race um, in all of that. Black theologians, womanist theologians, different voices, mixing it up. I also teach a course every two years called Mobilizing Congregations for Justice. It's a part of the Christian ministries part of our department. So because I have pastoral ministry experience, they kind of thought that I could bring some neat stuff to the table. And so, yeah, that's been really cool. I've only taught that twice so far in my four years, but um, it's a really cool course. I mean, it gets me to be able to kind of tease and expose um, my students to movement work, organizing work, yeah. social change, right? And how that relates to the gospel. And so, yeah. So when you're teaching these courses, specifically the ones that are about, you know, church history and, and some of that stuff, like I would assume most students coming, there's an ignorance level there because honestly there's oh, an ignorance level on me. So what's kind of that feedback where people are like, that's not what, that's not what I was told. Like, my pastors never told me that. That's not in my right. McGraw Hill history book. Like what's right. like, how did, what's that feedback kind of, because I'm, the reason I ask is, I often ask people about like the youthful generation, like so that in 50 years your books are obsolete and my daughter doesn't have to worry about patriarchy and you know, that type of stuff. But I meet so few people that actually are talking with the people that will be those people. And those are all bad sentences. So I'm curious, uh, kind of the feedback that you get from the students there. So most students come in, especially when I'm teaching for first year seminar course. I mean, these are, brand new straight to the campus haven't even been a part of the campus conversation so Mm. 
they um, absolutely have no clue what they're getting themselves into. I intentionally kind of just ease them in with history first, um, just because that's just the most helpful. So we start usually from slavery and just kind of move up <laughs> towards the present. And most times I spend the most time on 20th century history because that's actually, I think the biggest gap for folks is actually 20th century history. Um, they have this perception that you know, the 20th century was just about black people sitting at the back of the bus and not and separate water fountains. Right. And that was the heart of what the problem was. Well, to be um, fair, that's what the one chapter in the history book says that it was. Right. 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 Yeah. Right, right. And so they know nothing about convict leasing system, all the neo-slavery convict leasing systems, peonage, chain gangs, sharecropping, mm -hmm. all the ways that black people's labor is being exploited. Some of them never even heard of lynching. I'm still surprised every year mm. at that there's a portion of students that don't even know what lynching is and oh, that, this, that it was a means of racial terrorism and control over black people, the ways that we completely just contorted and controlled geography by race and people's belonging and where they can belong and not belong. And just the, just, I mean, there's so much more I could get into the policies yeah. that, that white people benefited from, from like, progressive era laws that black people were excluded from that helped to grow the white middle class, like all these things, they just no awareness of it. And so it shapes how people come into the conversation. So if I just ease them in and we just kind of walk through decade by decade, really, most students are prepared to say like slavery is a terrible thing. And so you start where they're already in agreement yeah. and there's just kind of like a frog boiling in the hot, you're just turning up the heat, right? And, and they just kind of go with you because it just kind of unfolds organically when you're actually looking, giving a close reading to what was actually happening in the history. So for me, I've gotten very little pushback in that kind of work because we're just kind of moving through history first before we engage in kind of the intellectual thought and stuff that makes much more sense once you actually know the history. When I went to college, I also still didn't learn any of that. It wasn't until afterwards. Actually, yeah, yeah. part and parcel, I started doing this podcast and some publishers sent me a few books. And I was like, what? Is, one of them was Rethinking Incarceration. With oh, yeah. Dominic, yeah. yeah Dominic and I just got so angry. And I talked to some, I have some good friends that are black. And, and um, it's turned into some beautiful conversations since and some hard conversations. So I want to roll it back towards the church, especially, I guess, in that 19th century, since that so much of that impacts where we live in right now. And maybe even you can go back before that. What's kind of the churches? Here's and so to set some context, um, you know, we got George Floyd, we got Ahmaud Arbery, we got Brianna, we got we got all every every three weeks somebody else is is murdered, um, and I'm aware that that is a charged word, and I use it intentionally. And the church has complicity in that. That's what I think. But I find often I don't know how to adequately articulate that. And it was actually with a recent interview, um, I, I talked with Justin Douglas, and he's like, "Dude, you should really talk with Drew Hart because we talked about it in brief, but not a lot." And so. What is kind of some of the history of the church as it relates to, I guess, racism in America, power struggles in America, et cetera, for you and I today? Like, where did all this fester up? Well, I think the, the very first thing that we've got to recognize is that the church is literally birthed racism, like modern racism, as we understand it today. So by that, I mean, like, if you go back to the 15th century, in fact, you go back further, right? So you have like this history of Western Christendom that's growing and arriving. And it's basically like Christian supremacy over society, right? Over Western civilization. And during that time, like when you get to like the um, crusades and stuff, you have some papal bulls that actually are justifying the plundering of lands, 
as early as the Crusades, this idea of terra nullius, empty lands, right? If it's not Christian land, it's empty lands, right? Mm. Now you jump forward to the 15th century and um, you have Portugal and Spain getting permission from the church through a, another papal bull to not only plunder and steal, but to enslave and like everything. Like it's just, um, and so like, that's where uh, modern like colonial slavery, conquest, all that stuff starts um, with Portugal and Spain in the 15th century. And the church is giving theological doctrinal permission, right? To go do that work. Mm. Like it, it's important that we see that um, Christian supremacy in society birthed white supremacy in society. Like it literally mutated into that. In fact, the, as the, I, the word white begins to emerge over time, um, it, it actually is a synonymous term with Christian. Like that's what people mean when they say whites, oh. they mean Christian because really? they've conflated Western society and Western Europe with Christianity so much. They forget that they are Gentiles and that they've been engrafted into somebody else's story. Um, and now they think they have a copyright over it. And that if anybody wants to become Christian, you come through us, right? Mm. We have a copyright on Christianity, on the Bible, on interpreting the Bible and on Jesus himself. Right. And so white supremacy is is a theological problem first before we can even call it a sociological problem um, we birth the problem and so there's a difference between like broader ethnocentrism or tribalism and different power dynamics in group out group things that have always existed but modern racism as we know it today grew out of so-called Christian societies um, that created hierarchies, right? Now you could argue that some of the work um, was first that colonial Christian language, then there was the, within those societies, pseudo-scientific arguments that are being made, but they're being made in the un, within still the logics of Christianity, a diseased Christianity, as Jennings would say, mm-hmm. uh, but nonetheless, a Christianity and nonetheless. And so these are distorted theologies that reorder creation, right? Literally, um, um, where Europeans are deemed superior in beauty, worth, and value, and intellect, and morality, um, the African is at the bottom of that hierarchy and other people are kind of scattered. And so, yeah, I think that if we're going to talk about racism today in our context, the first thing we have to do is stop pushing the idea that somehow, oh, our society is so bad and so racist as if we just got drug into the problem rather than the church created the problem. Mm. And so, yeah, that would be one of the things. But then along the way, I mean, at every stage, there's complicity involved in white supremacy in our society at every stage. Yeah. There's no, in fact, so I think in my trouble I've seen, I quote, was it in the night, I think it was 1946. So if you think like the 40s and 50s are actually the peak of what um, people would call a Christianized America, the highest percentage of Americans consider themselves Christians in like the 40s, 50s really? period, time period. Yeah. Um, which is, huh. there's this false perception that there's this, that there's been this like decaying of Christianity for a very long time. But it's actually the opposite is that from the colonial moment up until the mid 20th century, there's an increasing and a Christianizing of American society that doesn't stop until the mid 20th century. Anyway, so in that peak, you have all of a sudden, you know, 
obviously there's Jim Crow and all the stuff that yeah. are happening and unfolding in that space. And seven out of 10 white people in that moment, in the, the highest percentage of Christianized America, at least whatever that means, right? Seven out of 10 believe that Negroes are being treated fairly in this country, right? Hmm. In the 40s, right? We know all the horrible, um, the lynching, the segregation, the Jim Crow, the KKK stuff. We know the exclusion from participation yeah. in voting rights yeah. and all of that, right? Um, we've seen the the black and white documentaries of just a decade or two later of black people getting beat over their heads. We just talked about mm. John Lewis's legacy mm. um, and all that uh, folks like him stood for and fought for. And so it's baffling to see that our supposedly most Christianized moment is just complete denial of the racism that was just so blatant and literally organized in very obvious ways our entire society, right? Yeah. And most Christians were quiet and complicit to that. Um, and so I think that's just one way of getting into the conversation is just seeing yeah. either the perpetuation of the systems of racism or the silence to them and certainly benefiting from those systems. One of the questions I wrote down, actually, I, it's a broken sentence. So it's one that I haven't figured out how to voice yet. So I'm going to try to voice it now. Yeah. Um, so, so often, and it's two different questions and we can tackle them at different times. So I have found people like myself, and I'm probably sure also myself, you know, when I cross that traverse isn't the right way, that chasm of, I didn't see it before, I see it now. I can't quite put my finger on what I was afraid to lose by engaging in a conversation about race and the church in America. Yeah. Like, like, cause I haven't lost anything. Like I've lost a few friends, but we could argue they probably weren't friends to begin with, or maybe ones that I probably may not should have been friends with, or, or at least, you know, engaging in deep, meaningful conversations with outside of a tertiary level. But I think so often most people, especially in the church, the white Christian American church are like, no, we, I think they're, they're quiet because they're afraid they're going to lose something. Like, like I'm going to give up something. But then when I look back, I can't find that I've lost anything. I probably gained way, way, way more than I ever thought I might lose. But I don't remember having that mental thought until afterwards. And so I'm curious with your experience, because you travel the country, you talk on this a lot. You, I'm sure you talk in churches, at universities and et cetera your thoughts on that. What do you feel like the church feels like it's going to lose by staying quiet? Because silence is complicity. If you don't say anything, yeah. then you're, you're complicit. Like you're an accessory to whatever happened. Yeah. Probably what I would say is there are concrete things that will be lost and there's concrete things that will be won, right? For mm -hmm. white people, because there is a system in place that was set up and designed for white people to advantage white people. So I'll talk like in here in Harris in Pennsylvania, um, there's been an ongoing struggle around just the funding for public education by the state. So like we, you have two sources, right? You have the tax space mm -hmm. that funds it, but yeah. there's about 35 to 40% of the funding that comes from the state. And in Pennsylvania for a very long time, we didn't have a fair funding formula. What do you mean do. fair funding? Like, what does that mean? In terms of a formula that decides how that money should be distributed. So it's not being allocated. Oh, so like if it's unjustly. 10 schools, they all get 10% or whatever. Is that what you mean? Or it's just some, whatever method, right? Uh, okay. There could be a whole variety of okay. complex, okay. you know, things that they're using, but that there's a, a um, methodology mm -hmm. that makes sure that it's not discriminatory, right? Right. Anyway, so we didn't, for a very long time, we didn't have a fair funding formula. Most states do. There are a couple others, I think that still don't, but most do. There was enough pushing because um, they did work and showed that 
in Pennsylvania, the whiter a school district was, the more likely that they were going to be overfunded by the states. And the more people of color in a school district, the more likely that they're going to be underfunded by the state, right? And what surprised me, like in learning all this, which it shouldn't, you know, you'd think someone like me would not be surprised anymore. Mm-hmm. But I was surprised that it wasn't based on class. I thought that that was going to be a greater. So like when they did the research, they found that white rural communities, poorer communities were also being overfunded by the state. Now they were still struggling in terms of the the tax base part of it, but from the state portion, they were being overfunded. And like schools like where like Kobe Bryant grew up, he grew up in this like middle-class black community outside of Philly, you know, Lower Marion. His community was being underfunded by the state. Um, Now, again, I would say like they probably were okay because of the local tax basing, some ways could make up for it. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, there was this discrepancy that was happening across the board that race was the greatest determinant for whether that was going to happen or not. Anyway, so they got our state to finally adopt the fair funding formula. But what they did was they increased the budget for the state by like, I think it was six or 8%, put the new money through the fair funding formula and left everything else out of it, right? Oh, oh man. Which, which I consider like a admission of guilt more than it is actually fixing anything. Yeah. So now there's this push, right? But some of the challenges is that if this is a state issue, like it's gonna take more than just Philadelphia and Harrisburg and Pittsburgh and some of these largely minority dominant cities to get on board. We're gonna need... Uh, white communities, at least some, to get on board and say, this is wrong. And we're mm-hmm. going to vote in a way that's actually going to give us less uh, resources. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there is something, there's an advantage in the system that's built in for many places. Maybe not everyone has this exact problem, but it's these kinds of problems that exist where there's baked in advantages for communities that have already been advantaged that ju- it just perpetuates itself. Yeah. And so how do we create and stop that from happening? So I think those kind of things, but on the other hand, I do think like it's, it's actually a way better like to be fully human and to connect with people and the relationships and the richness of intercultural interactions and all. I mean, it's just actually really beautiful. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I think that when you think about, especially as Christians, when God, we talk about like God's reign on earth, the flourishing of people, shalom, that that's what we're actually being invited into. And so like, that's the good news. And so, but some people will always hear the good news as bad news. That will always be the case. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the rich young man who doesn't want to walk away, I sell like all his things. things so he could right participate in God's kingdom, which would give him so much a different kind of abundance. Right. But he couldn't see that. And so I always love when I hear white people see this as gain because I'm like, there's something actually there is something to be gained here. Yeah. Um, but it's depending on your own value system of what you actually think yeah. is worthwhile. When I say like I didn't lose much, like I, financially, it hasn't really impacted me, um, impacted which you, I'm yeah. aware that that is there's a lot of inequality in the job that I have and that type of stuff as well. Um, doesn't mean I haven't worked hard, but that doesn't mean that I didn't start on the second lap of the mile. And then we both ran a mile like, and people can argue with me on that all they want, but that's not what we're here to do today. But like when I think about a better education system, like I know, I think here in Virginia, like the, the dollars are apportioned by property values. And so the property values are apportioned by the zip code. But being that I'm in banking, I'm well aware because I take a training every three months that redlining still happens in different ways and that it happened in overt ways, not that long ago in John Lewis's time and Martin Luther King's time. Like, And those property values still suffer because of it, which means the schools in poorer neighborhoods 
suffer, suffer because of it. Absolutely. But most yeah. people get mad about them. Like, well, that's actually just math. Like, that's just banking. Like, right. this isn't a math. political. This isn't a religious. Right. This is not even a demographic. thing. like, this is just raw right. math. Like, we broke the values of the homes, and then we said schools get money based on the values of the homes. So many people are baffled internationally with their horrified that we would set up funding for education in this way because it's obviously there's no way but for it to be an yeah. inequitable yeah. Um, outcome right yeah. there's just that's the, it's designed to do that work yeah and for black people i mean you gotta like a large percentage of black people still do not even own their own homes mm. i think it's like a quarter right or something i forget yeah. exact number but yeah. it's a large percentage of but that's even less when you have all these renters and certainly yeah. in harrisburg we have a very high renting population in our city and so mm. um how do you fund education yeah in those scenarios. Yeah. This is a sentence that I've become accustomed to using because people at the bank want to argue about politics, especially about the CARES Act and socialism and the president. And it's really hard because when I have a name tag on, I don't have an opinion. My opinion is I voted for your person. I'm glad that they won. I'm glad they won. But realistically, what I've ended up telling people is regardless of who's in power, what church is running the shots, what president's running the shots, what school board superintendent is running the shots. I live here. I have a vested interest in not only my kids knowing what's going on in 15 years because they're going to be fully functioning adults, but my neighbor's kids as well, regardless right. of race or gender. Like, I live here. I right. need educated people to continue to help society work. I live here. Right. I, I right. need things to go well, and I need whoever right. the president is as well to go because I live here. I have a vested interest, whether or not I agree with it for it and, to work. And that, I mean, it's a very biblical, when you think about like a theology of Shalom, it's, it, it, it forces us to recognize that we are interconnected, our interdependency mm-hmm. with one another and seeking that kind of harmony and that the well-being of everyone is, is dependent on each other. Right. Yeah. And that to think of ourselves as such autonomous beings that have nothing in to do with others. Um, that's part of the reasons why we're in so many of the issues that we're in today is because we don't see our interconnectedness that somebody else is thriving and flourishing actually relates to mine. Right. Um, And there's ways that I can do it in a harmful way that will perpetuate other problems, or we can link together and both rise up and we can all flourish together. Yeah. Thinking of economies, just because now we're talking about banking, so I can't not think this, but I feel like I've heard you say it somewhere. And so I'm probably stealing it from you, but I'm actually not certain if I am, maybe I made it up. I'm not smart enough to make it up. I'm sure I stole it from someone, but you brought up the rich man and that parable of, you know, sell everything you have and come back. And he just couldn't do it. I feel like so often churches in America are addicted to their endowment funds and all of the money that they hoard, and they usually don't give it away, I think, as as a church should. Like, they should just take it in and then, oh, you need something, whether or not you go to church here, I got you. You need food, I got you. You need a roof, I got you. Whatever you need to do. Versus Zacchaeus is like, oh, I did this. Oh, and now I've got to forgive everybody. Like, I'm going to give all my money away because I've, I've met Christ. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Do you feel like the church is in a position where they're acting more like the rich man or more like Zacchaeus? Or am I taking Zacchaeus the wrong way? Because I've always read it that way. Um, yeah, I mean, so to read Zacchaeus, you have to put it in context of the gospel of Luke, right? right? Luke's gospel has an unrelenting uh, focus on economics. He just, he just leans in heavy mm-hmm. compared to the other gospels. All of them. Jesus clearly 
in all the gospels identifies with the poor and serves them in particular and came up from a poor Galilean community himself. Right. Um, so it's not a question, but, but Luke's gospel, it's just like a ongoing unrelenting theme. I've been saying to folks, it's funny because I don't know if you've been hearing some of it, but there's been some of this stuff about, Oh, well that's Marxism. I'm like Marxism. Have you read like Luke mm. or like mm. the gospel or uh, the letter of James or something like these are vicious, <laughs> right? Um, Jesus has a vicious class consciousness um, in constantly critiquing the wealthy for hoarding, right? And for identifying the poor, not just the poor in spirit, but the poor themselves as being a characteristic, a condition Mm -hmm. um, that is characteristic to the kingdom of God. And so it's really interesting, number one, just when you frame that out, the context of where the Zacchaeus story is coming out of. And you see this kind of theme of jubilee, this jubilee ethic, which reviving from like Leviticus, right? This idea where redistribution and yeah. reparation and get returning yeah. lands Every and seven monies years, yeah. and fresh start, right? Um, that happens, this kind of deliverance that unfolds. And so all of that is there. So then you have this Zacchaeus story that is literally side by side, practically with the rich young ruler. And because they're right beside, they, they serve as kind of foils to one another. Um, here's this man who wants to follow Jesus, but he's not willing to take up Jesus's command to sell all he has and follow him mm-hmm. and give it to the poor, right? That's actually what Jesus says and give it to the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course people, because people don't like hearing Jesus talk about that, they do all these fancy gymnastics um, for it to mean <laughs> something else do. other than what it actually says, right? Yeah. Oh, it's just a matter of the heart. That's not what Jesus says, but that's, that's what we say. Yeah. It's just a matter of the heart. So this could be anything now you just decide. And once your heart is in a good place, then you're fine. And then you don't actually have to do anything so yeah. long as you've adjusted your heart, right? Yeah. You don't have to yeah. actually take the action that Jesus focused on. Anyway, so that's interesting. But the Zacchaeus story, you have this exploiter, tax collector, who's exploiting his own community, benefiting a part of this system of exploitation. Jesus comes to town and he has this Jesus encounter with him. And his response is Jubilee ethics in two different ways. It's he says, I'll give half of my money to the poor. And then he says, uh, I'll give four times back what I've taken from folks, Mm. right? Um, So there's redistribution, which people hate, and there's reparations, which American Christians also (laughs) hate, right? Um, But that's the Jesus moment that he has. And that's in contrast to the rich young ruler's response, right? This plays out through the um, New Testament a whole variety of different ways. So there's not like one singular way I think that this has to look. Um, you look, you think about like Paul and, um, well, number one, he, uh, Peter says to Paul is remember the poor, right? That's in Galatians. Um, so that's clear part of the mission that you've got to remember the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we see with Paul then is there's different regions and some people are struggling and other people are doing well. And so there's this kind of almost regional redistribution of wealth that's happening. And he's constantly kind of getting churches from different regions to see themselves as identified and taking care of, of wealth and inequalities in that kind of broader sense. Um, we see in the gospel of Acts, um, this radical communities that emerge, the spirit takes root and they share all things in common. And then they go out and they cause civil disobedience to get in trouble with the state. <laughs> and then they come back and they intensify and do it even more. And people are selling their fields and giving it up and coming, you know, it's just pretty radical. And this is in response to what we see happening in the Jesus story. I mean, Luke, yeah. right. It's the Luke acts is a singular story um, being told. And so, 
Um, anyway, we could go on and on. You, the radical critique of Revelation in terms of just the wealth of Babylon, right? That's Rome mm -hmm. um, and the kind of response um, that the church, right? Right, exactly, America <laughs> yeah. in terms of how we live. And so, yeah, I, I think there's no question that the church, we've lost any kind of concrete, tangible way of actually following the Jesus ethic around money. Uh, we, we do some weird stuff where we make everything just about stewardship. Mm. And by stewardship, what people really mean is um, be wise with your money and make it work for you, right? That's stewardship a lot of is a mean. synonym for hoarding. That's all that that is. Right. It's a synonym for hoarding, <laughs> um, but in a Christian way, right? There's a Christian way to hoard and there's a non-Christian way to hoard. And so long as you're giving of your abundance, right? Yeah. Which is actually one of the things Jesus critiques when he goes into the temple after he shuts it down, calls them a den of robbers for their exploitation. Yeah. Then later, as he, he does his later take, teaching takeover in the temple, he points out, right? Look, he brings, he huddles them all together. He's like, watch this. And they see all the people giving all their wealth and they're just giving out of, there's nothing to Leftovers. Jesus, right? Yeah. And then he sees the widow give everything that she has. Um, and what we miss, which is ironic that we miss is previously, Jesus actually says he critiques um, the temple for um, devouring widows' homes, right? Exploiting and taking everything from them, right? So I think like in that moment, what we miss is it's not just a praise, it's a praise and a lament. It's a praise mm -hmm. that she has the characteristics of discipleship and that there's this system that would take everything from this widow, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so yeah. we've kind of missed the implications of, of, of how to deal with our money faithfully in radical ways that are participating in God's kingdom. Um, and it's not a, a world in which we all then are poor. It's a world in where everyone has enough, right? Yeah. Where everyone can flourish. And I think that we've lost sight of that. Yeah, it's, it's a critique. I've never actually thought about it that way, but it's a critique of the rich people giving out of their abundance of if you had just done it correctly, like the way that you should have loved the people that are around you, you wouldn't be breaking the widow. She would still be giving what she can, obviously, because she already is. And everything would just be better. And we talked a minute ago about uh, myself. Um, so here we go. So I feel like often white churches stay on the sidelines because they don't actually know how to take a stand. And so yeah. I think that's all the more and more important right now. And I, and I know that, you know, I've heard you talk a bit about, about the way, you know, uh, I'm going to lose, I lost the train of thought. What do you call it? The way that Martin Luther King um, would demonstrate uh, peaceful protest? No. Is that what it's called? Like. Nonviolence. There it is. I couldn't think stuff. of the yeah, word. It, yeah, escaped, yeah. it escaped me. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So for today, what should the role of the church be? Because what I don't want to see is all of this gasoline that has been poured into the engine of America to spin back out and we have to have another social justice revolution. How do we continue and the church come alongside communities to take all of this brokenness with George Floyd and everything else for all the years prior as well, and actually affect some real change. Like how does the church both exert influence and power and at the same time, give it up, if that makes any sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, some of it, we have to understand like, who, who are we, right? So who are we as the church? What does it mean to be the church? Um, what makes church, church? I mean, we can use the word, um, but not every gathering that happens in the world is a church, right? So what 
really makes us the church. And some of it, I mean, I would like to believe that uh, the presence of Jesus mm. um, uh, needs to be presence and following the way of Jesus and participating in Christ together. And not just in the superficial abstract sense, um, but that we didn't have to be in, in unity with the way of Christ. Like if, if we're not in unity with the way of Christ, we're not being church in the, the called out ones, Ecclesia, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think that's the first thing because the way of Jesus, it's clear, it's, it's unambiguous um, that Jesus was about prioritizing the least, the last and lost of society. That's what Jesus did in his ministry. That's God's reign on come on earth. Um, he's prioritizing the Samaritans, the vulnerable women, the stigmatized, the sick, right, um, in society. And he's making them central in God's reign. And so the church, if we're in unity with Christ, is also living in congruity with that. And we're also in congruity then with the prophetic witness of Jesus. Again, we talked about him. He goes to Jerusalem. He clashes with the establishment. He speaks truthfully with integrity, a prophetic witness, right, in the public square about the injustices because the temple at that time is the center for everything. Yeah. It's not just the religious center. It's the cultural, political, economic, um, everything center for them, right? And um, and they're in cahoots at this moment with Rome, right? I mean, that's just the history of that moment. And so Jesus goes in and he clashes, he confronts it. He, it's like an Occupy moment, right? Occupy the temple. He shuts it down, um, brings it to a standstill for a moment, um, which is hard. It's, this is not any small thing. This is a temple, right? In Jerusalem of all places. And he knows that there's going to be consequences. You don't go into the temple in Jerusalem uh, clash with the establishment, the powers that be, and that there's not, and believe that there's not going to be a, a, a clap back right, of some sort from from those in power. Mm -hmm. So when we begin to actually take seriously the way of Jesus um, for our own way of life in the public square, it's going to shape how we engage in our society and respond to these issues. That we are also going to be in solidarity with those who are poor and most vulnerable in our communities, yeah. and that we are willing to that our 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 responsibility is not to control the social order, right, from the top down, but from the grassroots, bear witness to something else and have a prophetic witness to call our society to what God desires for all of us, right? Yeah. Um, not in a hegemonic or dominating way, but in an invitational way that that God has something better for all of us. Mm. Um and we're willing to clash and confront, right? Yeah. And we're willing to engage in the kind of methods. Jesus talks about the things that make for peace. This is at Luke 19, as he weeps over Jerusalem, he says, if only they had known the things that make for peace, because it, it kind of then anticipates just the violence that will come in, uh, what's it, 66 to 70 AD with the Roman Jewish war, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's like kind of the backdrop of so much of the gospels is this anticipation that there's this zealot revolution that's going to take place and Rome is going to come in and destroy and slaughter folks. 6,000 Jews will be killed, many more millions. Just It's just horrifying, yeah. the violence yeah. that's exerted. And so Jesus laments that, right? If only they had known the things that make for, for true shalom, true well-being and flourishing. Um, and that suggests that there are 
certain kinds of practices that are more conducive for this work than other ones are, right? And I do believe that nonviolence, it's a strategy, it's a social change strategy that is actually conducive with the peacemaking of Jesus that we see. Um, Him teaching us, you know, love your enemies and um, the kind of subversiveness that so many of us miss about the Sermon on the Mount, right? The go the extra mile Mm -hmm. when, um, you know, they're only allowed to go one mile, right? The soldiers. And, And so if you could think, it's almost like a comedy in your head, like the Jesus is telling, like they're only allowed to go one mile and then you just keep going. And all yeah. of a sudden the power and agency has shifted. Yeah, right? Give me my stuff and back. I like, got you. I got you. Where you need to go. Right, I'm going right. to take you the whole way. Now the Roman soldier is like, no, 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 come back here. Give me that back. You know, cause he doesn't want to get in trouble. Yeah. So there's an agency switch. So it's, it's a creative nonviolent mm-hmm. response to this injustice that's happening. Um, same thing even with the turning the cheek, right? It's not about you getting smacked around. Mm-hmm. That's not Jesus point. It's that people don't have agency. So if you're seen as nothing and you're slapped um, across, backhandedly, um, that's like a, a way you slap someone as an inferior. And so when he says, turn the other mm-hmm. cheek, um, you're slapping the other way, which actually as a, as a, as an equal, yeah. right. Yeah. And so like the point isn't that Jesus wants you to get smacked around. It's that you are in moments where it seems like someone might have no agency, all of a sudden they do have agency and can break cycles of violence in, in creative ways, strategic ways, right? Mm-hmm. And so we, we take those kind of small things along with the huge radical action of Jesus literally taking up his own cross and clashing with the establishment. And it, it's a pretty clear picture then for us as the church that we've got to actually take Jesus seriously in our public action, yeah. in our political imagination, not in terms of partisanship, but in terms of God's reign on earth and our willingness to uh, embrace suffering on behalf of our neighbors because we love them and committed to their justice. Yeah, I can remember the first time that I heard that part about turn the other cheek and whatnot. So we got a new pastor um, years ago, maybe five years. Barrett, I know you're going to listen to this and I'm sorry if I got the years wrong. What's funny is I was on his search committee, so I should really know the yeah. year, but a yeah. lot has happened since then. But I remember he did a sermon on that and I never heard any of that where he's, he said the same thing, like, no, you were only allowed yeah. to go a mile. And then after that, like going further was a way to take to, to both be a servant, but also right. be submissive. And the same thing with turning the other cheek. And I feel like, and I might be wrong, like when you know you you know they ask for your coat and you give them you give them more clothes yeah, to the, tunic, the yeah. way that it is. Like you're basically stripping down like naked. Like oh, you need clothes. Right. I'll give it all to you. If I need to be right. naked for you, I've got you. And I might be remembering that wrong, but yeah, I remember right. sitting that's there right. going, huh? Yeah. I never, never in my life has this ever been preached to me. And it puts a shame on the person that, that would act. actually end up taking everything from them, right? Yeah. Um, and so, the, and that's that's actually a method that people have used globally. Really? Um, women stripping down naked um, as a way of actually putting shame on those who are oppressing them. Like, yeah. these are actually things that actually do happen around the world, mm-hmm. right? And so... Yeah, I think we miss sometimes misunderstand really the subversiveness of Jesus in some of those comments. Yeah, and I think that's intentional because of the way that the church has used Jesus as a way to colonize, colonialize, right, domesticate, uh, dilute yeah. his teachings. Yeah. Right. I do want to talk about that word domesticated, but you used a word zealous in a minute a minute ago, um, or zealot or zealot mentality or something like that. Yeah. Um, I have heard and again again because I haven't read your most current book that comes out probably by the time this is out, I'll put it out around September. Why not? Because I think your book comes out September 1st. I've heard you or I've read you because I try to do a little bit of research on that. You talk a bit about Barnabas, like a Barnabas mentality, the role of Barnabas in the Gospels. Can you talk a bit? Barabbas. Oh yeah, Barabbas. Sorry. Yeah, Yeah, I'm thinking of the wrong B. Yeah, yeah, Barabbas. Which made me think, um, and I referenced my friend Josh earlier, all the time when we're arguing with some friends of ours, 
Uh, many of them are more moderate than us, or many are just the opposite, or or where I was maybe 15 years ago. He'll just yeah. be, he'll just yell, give me, give us Barabbas, and he'll just leave the conversation. And so when I heard you say that or read you say that, I'm like, Josh, this is your man right here. But yeah. being that I haven't read it, can you break that apart a bit about me? Because all I've seen is little two or three segment, like sentence segments. Um, but I'm yeah. genuinely curious, and I have already bought your book, so I'm going to read yeah. it. So I'm not stealing. Yeah, it. <laughs> I have a whole chapter um, called "Liberating Barabbas." Right? I, I I went all in and have a whole huge chapter on that. Um, and and there's just the sum of it, right? I mean, I get into more detail, but the the gist of it is we've um, domesticated and diluted Barabbas's um, significance in Scripture, and in some ways, we do it which allows us to further dilute and domesticate Jesus. Like mm-hmm. that's my argument, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we ignore what the text actually says about Barabbas and then we use him in other ways. Sometimes he's just characterized as, you know, um, just a wild, crazy, mad man who's foaming at the mouth, who's a serial killer, yeah. you know, he's almost yeah. like the Joker or something, just killing people for no reason, going through the villages, right? <laughs> um, there's, and he's just this horrible person, right? Or uh, all these different kind of characters mm-hmm. of him. Mm-hmm. There's actually, um, I, when I was doing, I actually Googled and I found like there's a little clip, like some where like literally he's like cockeyed and drooling and this crazy laugh mm-hmm. that's happening. It's just interesting, like how he's been characterized at times. So there's this perception of him. And then, maybe a more fancy way of diluting him is people have used him to kind of push and focus on penal substitutionary atonements. Mm. Even though that's not what the text is doing, that's what people want to do and use him for. And so the argument is, you know, Jesus is the innocent one. And so there he's the, our guilty one and, and Jesus takes his place and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. so we are all, I am Barabbas, right? That kind of thing. You know? yeah. um, now it is interesting that the gospel of Luke is the only one where the language of innocence does show up, but it's not talking about innocence in terms of like a sinful life or innocent life. It's talking about the political charges, right? Is Jesus is being charged with subverting the empire and mm-hmm. telling people not to pay the tax and all this stuff, right? Subversion. And and the argument is Jesus is innocent of these charges, right? Which are actually questionable because in some way he ha- doesn't do them and in some ways he kind of has done it. So it's kind of yeah. complicated, right? But anyway, yeah. so it's political charges and we ignore that and we just make it about the innocence of Jesus and the guiltiness of Barabbas so that we can talk about substitutionary atonement. But what we actually find, number one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all four of them actually mentioned Barabbas, which is interesting. Like there's a lot of things that not all four gospels don't talk about, right? There's lots of, I mean, we only have one um, true Christmas birth story. Maybe you could argue two and a half, right? Yeah. If you include Matthew. But yet all of them seem to, it's so important for us to have Barabbas at the end of the story. Why is Barabbas so important at the end of the story, right? And what we find is that they're consistent about who Barabbas was. He was an insurrectionist. He participated in the uprising, right? He was a revolutionary. Or we would sometimes, sometimes people use the language of zealots. Um, at that time, it's complicated. Even though the, the gospel writers use the language of zealots, it actually wasn't a thing quite yet in Jesus's time. It actually ha- it emerges a couple of decades later when the gospel writers are writing that that language is used. But the idea of zealots actually were there, like there were groups like that, um, even if they hadn't coalesced under that name yet. Um, there were these folks who wanted to engage in violent revolutionary work. They believe that God's deliverance was calling him, inviting them into that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Barabbas represents that tradition, right? Um, from the Maccabees up to the Jewish Roman war, um, 
there's this tradition that exists um, of seeing that we need to violently overthrow and bring yeah. God's kingdom back in. So it's clear all of them say that he participated in the insurrection. Um, Matthew's a little bit different, though. Matthew actually has probably a more extended conversation around Jesus and Barabbas. All of a sudden now you have, in fact, it's it's actually really actually matters what biblical text you use. Um, in this one, there's some cases where it doesn't matter. But um, you mean text, you mean translation? Okay, yeah. Yeah, what manuscripts, right, mm-hmm. that people are drawn from. Because in Matthew, some of the oldest manuscripts actually say, like, who is it? Uh, Jesus Christ or Jesus Barabbas, right? Mm. Um, and then in some of the later manuscripts, it seems like they took out the Jesus Barabbas one and just put Barabbas because maybe they were uncomfortable with that. But it seems actually that it was intentional. Like it's a title. Um, that they were, right. That there's, well, it's like two Jesuses, right? Mm. And you think about the name Jesus, like uh, Joshua, Yeshua, the one who saves, the one who delivers, right? Like that's, um, and so you have Jesus the Christ or Jesus Barabbas, who, who's going to be your savior? Who's going to be your deliverer? Who, do you, who are you counting on and looking to for deliverance, right? Um, that's what Matthew really brings you to, that question, um, because they choose Barabbas, right, mm. instead of Jesus. And so what kind of revolutionary do you want? Um, you have this nonviolent revolutionary who's willing to be crucified. <laughs> that doesn't sound so appeasing, probably, for folks who are yeah. struggling in that moment. Yeah, who wants and that? then you have this guy with a, pro- a proven track record, right? He's willing to put his life on the line. He's willing to fight for the people. Um, what kind of revolutionary do you want, right? Um, and so I think that we have there this contrast, and it has socio-political implications for both Barabbas and Jesus, right? In terms of the way in which they go about seeking liberation on earth, God's reign on earth, shalom and peace, right? Um, h- how do we actually go about that? Um, and that goes ties back to the whole idea of the things that make for peace, right? Mm-hmm. What are the things that actually make for peace? What is the actual way of Jesus, right? It's not just about going off to heaven, but how, how does Jesus want us to live in this world politically? Right. Not partisanship in terms of, but the king, the, the politics of the kingdom of God, like Mm -hmm. how do we engage and practice that here on earth as a counter witness to empire and oppression and domination and cycles of violence, right? How do we embody that here and now? And so I think Barabbas actually invites us to see a radical Jesus, Mm. a nonviolent revolutionary Messiah. Right. Um, But that's not willing to engage in destroying his enemies to get there, um, that he's got a different path of actually truly bringing shalom. And there's a possibility that anybody can participate and be invited into that new vision and new dream. Mm. Is the word, and this is not really related, but I'm curious. So I know uh, when I spoke with uh, Tom Wright, uh, he used Paul and zeal, and then he related it back to the Old Testament. I can't remember who he's related back to, but is the term like Paul being zealous Zealous. Is that related to zealous? Or are those two words being used in differently? Because yeah. when I hear zealous in that way, or zealous, like I'll, I will kill you if you don't agree with me. Like you're the wrong type of Christian or the wrong kind of Jew. You gots to go. Is that the same way that they're using zealot for it's, for it's Barabbas? Related, or? yeah. It's definitely related. Zealous for God, right? Um, and 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 what you got to remember, like for the, they're not just. I mean, on one hand, like it's helpful in some ways to say like they're freedom fighters, right? Mm-hmm. Like to use that language. Um, it's helpful when you want to be not, one. <laughs> it's right, but yeah. but if we're not careful, we'll lose the sight that they are trying to be faithful to God. That they're doing this out of their understanding of who they believe God is and what they believe God desires 
for them to do. So it is their out of their faith that they are operating and they are zealous for God in this, right? Now we might question like, is this a, a meaningful interpretation? Like mm-hmm. um, in terms of how they're interpreting what they believe God is calling them to. Um, but it is um, their religious faith and devotion to God, their zealousness for God that is driving them um, to this kind of action. And so mm-hmm. it's not just a socio-political response. It is actually um, a stepping out in faith that this is the kind of action that they believe God um, desires for them. Yeah. So I want to stay on that theme and then I'll make this one of my last two questions because I know I promised you an hour and I'm about to go over and I'm sorry. So um, you have time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I've got the whole day, but I'm I'm sure you don't. Uh, So in thinking of that, so when I hear you say that, so I think that both sides of the aisle, both sides of the aisle, um, both especially here in America, both well, all of the aisles, you know, the Green Party, the Democrats, the Republicans, conservatives, the evangelicals, the whatever, an evangelical, if that even means anything anymore, but that's a whole different hour-long conversation. I think they do think that what they're doing, if they're oppressing people, they're doing it because of the way that they interpret God. And if they're yeah. trying to fight for liberation, that they're doing it because of the interpretation of Christ. And they both are coming from a perspective of, I'm doing the best that I can, which I hear you saying the same thing for people that are trying to interpret their faith it just they end up being violent with it because that's how they see their zeal their, their passion for for god driving them and so i'm going to give a hypothetical so hypothetically january whatever the induction day is doesn't matter who the president is if we have a new president and that president wants to enact massive amounts of change you're going to have the church come try to come alongside them play politics play power and exert their influence to try to exact racial reconciliation all kinds of change, and they're going to do it with their interpretation of, I'm doing this to be righteousness with God. And let's say that happens the opposite way. You know, the current president is still the president, and the church continues to come alongside them, many of which have already vocally expressed their opinion on Black Lives Matter, racial reconciliation, segregation, a lot of things. Um, And you can just Google a lot of big name church leaders, and you'll see that. And not just on race, but on gender and sexuality and all kinds of things. Yeah. How does a pastor, a minister, a professor, or just a a dude that happens to work at a bank, how do I discern well that? And then how do I take that discernment and go, here's how I can speak against that in a way that helpfully exacts change, or here's how I can instead push back against that, showing compassion to those that are where I was 20 years ago. And I say that because I think you could go both ways. I think people pivot on that pendulum, both sides, constantly based on their emotions. I hope I'm asking that question well. I'm trying my best. I think so. And you can let me know if I missed Perfect. it or not. Yeah. I mean, I think that, so diverse interpretations of what it means to be Christian are inevitable, mm-hmm. right? I mean, with diverse people, diverse spaces and contexts, with diverse experiences, there's going to be diverse interpretations. That's inevitable. Mm-hmm. There's going to always have to be ongoing conversations about what it means to be Christian. And we're going to have to be dialoguing across difference, right? Like that that's a necessary part of what it means to be the church is that the church can't just be in a silo. Um, it has to wrestle with the historic church, but also the global church, right? Yeah. And we have to be conversing and dialoguing and reinterpreting in new moments with new understandings. It's just, it's just an ongoing conversation that has to happen. Um, I guess the question number one is, what is the criteria Um, that we use to base our conversations, to orient and norm our conversations, right? 
Um, I would argue, and that this is also an interpretation, right? I would argue that it's the life and teachings of Jesus is the norming norm for Christians. I know radical. it was radical to say that. Um, it is actually radical, though, to say that, right, in some churches, to say um, that that the life of Jesus ought to norm our lives mm. in some way or form, right? Um, and so for others, that's not the case. It's, you know, maybe an interpretation of John 3.16, right? Mm. Or Galatians and Romans interpretations, mm -hmm. right? Of, you know, justification by faith and from a Protestant Reformation 16th century interpretation of yeah. that text, right? And so it's not settled. I think that we will have to grapple with and dialogue vulnerably and openly around what we see happening throughout all of scripture and how it climaxes in the person of Jesus Christ mm -hmm. um, and how that shapes our action in the world. At the point that we're at now, like I would argue from reading Christian history that slowly beginning with Constantine and going forth from that, Jesus continues to get further and further marginalized in, um, in terms of shaping our ethics, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I would make a historical argument. I would make a textual argument about what Jesus seems to be inviting us to do himself, right? Yeah. How does Jesus describe the kind of life that we're supposed to live as the starting point, as a launching and the lens through which we read everything else? But I do think that that is going to be the starting point that it has to be is that we're dialoguing about these things that actually really do matter because they shape how we live and act in the world. Yeah. And we have to be dialoguing across difference. And then we respond. Um, and I think that in terms of, you know, the different partisan responses, you know, we've got to come to a point in the church where we realize um, like we can't let the tail wag the dog, you know, for so long we've allowed the platforms of political parties that are really coming from elites to determine our Christian ethics yeah. and our practice, right? Our political imagination, literally, literally. I mean, just, I mean, you step into a church and then usually within seconds, you know, oh, this is a democratic leading church or Republican leading church, right? Uh, uh, um, and so it's completely shaped our imagination. And it's not necessarily to say, I don't want to equivocate as though they're equally the bad, equally the same. I actually don't believe that. But I also believe that neither of them reflect the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And we've got to have enough integrity and rootedness in, in God's reign that we can um, speak truthfully to everybody. Right. I, even in my new book, like one of the things I lament is I said, like, you know, in fact, I was just thinking yesterday as watching the John Lewis, mm. um, funeral. Yeah. So how, number one, we have short-term memory. So all of a sudden now George Bush is so great and things like that. He was a war criminal that thousands, if not millions of people yeah. died because of him. Right. So, yeah. I, um, just because he can be polite and civil, I think there's, uh, and even, and even Obama, like I, in my book, I say, like, I was disappointed the ways that we were not able to prophetically hold him accountable. Yeah. Yes. He's the first black president. Yes. He's pushing for things, um, like healthcare in ways, and he was getting enormous resistance and it made it hard for him to do his work. Yes. All these things. And he also worked with the big banks and did zone warfare, uh, drone warfare and all that kind of stuff in ways that were problematic. Right. Yeah. And we, we have to have the integrity to not align ourselves with anybody in that kind of way where we're just towing a party line, mm -hmm. but bear witness faithfully. And so like, I may not, like, I probably would disagree with the ways that many Republicans critiques Obama. I think that they were actually more immoral, some of them, right? Yeah. But, but the fact that 
that doesn't take away the, the responsibility for me to have a faithful prophetic witness in the public square and to name truthfully and unveil evil that's happening in society, no yeah. matter who's in that seat. Yeah. Right. And I think that's important. Yeah. Talking about John Lewis. So did you read the New York Times piece that came out, I think, yesterday? Yeah, really briefly. Yeah. yeah. So there's a part in there. Hold on one second. Hey, baby. Yeah. Tell you what, I'll come fix it in just a few minutes. I'm almost done, okay? <laughs> I've got little ones, so I know how that works. Shut, shut the door, baby. Don't slam it. <laughs> so what she said, I don't know if you could hear or not, is my son broke the TV and now they can't watch the Thundermen. What's even more funny is I don't know how to edit video, so this will stay in the video for the people okay. on Patreon. Um, yeah. so, a little extra, a little bonus footage. Yeah, yeah, so I'll leave this part in here. If you would like to meet my youngest daughter, become a patron supporter of the show because she just showed up on camera. Um, all messy hair and everything. But in the New York Times piece, here's, here's a part that my pastor posted it and then I read it and I agree. So he said it gave him chills. So here's what it says. John Lewis wrote in the days before his death that when historians pick up their pens to write the story of the 21st century, let them say that it was your generation who laid down the heavy burdens of hate at last and that peace finally triumphed over violence, aggression, and war. So I say to you, walk with the wind, brother and sisters, and let the spirit of peace and power and everlasting love be your guide. Like, it's just so powerful. Um, but yeah, I watched some of that stuff. I watched President Obama's eulogy, I think a speech or eulogy, I don't know what you want to call it. Last question, I think. No, it's not the last question. There's a question I've asked everybody that has come on this year. So I have to ask that question because yeah. we're two thirds yeah. of the way through the year and I can't miss one now. But here's here's why I ask. And, and it's because I've heard you talk about it, I think on the Inverse podcast or maybe some other podcast because you're on there with Jared McKenna, who does a lot of good things. And for those listening, you should go listen to that right now that he's doing a lot of fantastic things on the other side of the planet. Um, but so for people like myself, I feel like oftentimes when people come in, and they're like, oh, now I'm woke. Now I have something to say. And not just about race, but about LGBT conclusion or this, that, or the other. We come in and we just suck up all the air and say, now here's what we need to do. Because I've, in my arrogance of 15 minutes of learning since I've now come to the light, um, I need to do X, Y, or Z. So what would you say to people that are starting into this conversation and then now want to do something? How do they do that without actually sucking up all of the space for other people that have already been doing something? Like what is a wise way to begin to enter into that stream? Yeah, I mean, I always tell, you know, when I go and speak to congregations, I always say, first and foremost, like, first you need to figure out like, map out like who's been doing this work already. Just lay that out, do your research and who's been doing the work, that's mm -hmm. one thing. Um, and you want to enter in as followers, not, not leaders, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you need to have the epistemological humility, right? That is humility in our ways of knowing as you enter in, realizing that you don't have the lived experience and traditions that have been at this for a very long time. And so your perceptions and analysis of what should be done or shouldn't be done is, is coming from a very limited context, right? Um, it's not that you, you can grow in that. So it's not necessarily that you have to be permanently babies in that space for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it's not until you've kind of been reformed and have new lenses to interpret the world that you can actually maybe contribute it more meaningfully. And until then, you need to see yourself as uh, followers as not, you know, I think white people, especially in this case and anybody in a dominant position, right. It would, depending on what the issue is, um, have the tendency to see themselves as perpetual teachers. Right. Mm. Um, but what does it mean to invert 
those those postures where the first or last and last the first and to enter in as students and allow those who are most impacted, those most vulnerable who are most impacted to actually lead um, and guide the way forward. I think that that is really important work. And there's just so much unlearning to be done. And that's why like action and like, like, so there's a temptation, like different churches I've seen, like there's some churches where um, all they want to do is read books, right? <laughs> and they will read books, book after book, they do book study after book study, have book study, mm-hmm. and they see that as the work, right? It's just book studies. Um, and it's this kind of like college educated, kind of comfortable way of engaging problems. And if we read a book about it, then we're, then we've, you know, overcome. Mm. Um, and then there's other churches where, oh, we don't have time for that. We need to act, right? And so you start doing things, right? And they, you got their do, to-do list. Um, and both of those are problematic, right? Um, and so we've got to find a way where real meaningful practice happens where our action and our learning are coming together simultaneously. Mm. Mm. If it's just intellectual stimulation, right? I mean, that's it's empty if it doesn't also include action that we're learning and, and pulling into. And if it's just action, we're likely without the learning and unlearning and relearning, we're likely to to do more harm than we even realize in the mm. process that while we're trying to do good. Um, and so I yeah. think all of those things have to happen simultaneously. And that would also deeply impact the way that we enter into spaces and contribute in those spaces if we're doing our homework and acting, um, but acting through following, right? And yeah. solidarity and linking arms with um, those who, who have been most affected. Yeah, I like acting through following. I, I like that. Um, yeah, come alongside and don't get in the front of the line. Just fall in line, learn something, and then do something. Being that you just met my five-year-old, I'm going to phrase this question in a different way. The question I've been asking everyone this year is just a bigger, broader concept of God. And so so, so say I put her in my lap, I put her on the mic, and I say, hey, uh, ask Drew whatever you want to ask him. And she says, Drew, who's, what is God? Who is God? What is that? Like, what is that? And you're trying to explain it. What are the words that you would try to wrap around that? Um, I probably would point us, uh, I would say that, you know, God is so much bigger than anything that we can describe. And so the best thing that we can do is look to where God has revealed God's self most clearly, right? Um, And so for me, that would be Jesus and particularly Christ crucified, right? I I think about 1 Corinthians 1, where um, Paul says that, that the in the crucified Christ, God's power and God's wisdom is revealed, right? It's really fascinating that God's power and God's wisdom is revealed in the crucified Christ. And then it goes on to suggest then that that helps us interpret how God is acting in the world. God has chosen the weak to shame the strong. God has chosen those who are considered nothing to shame those who are considered something, right? And so forth. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that maybe... Um, having handles on God is not something that we can really do, right? That's something beyond us. Um, but but what we can do is, uh, what's it in Hebrew somewhere in the beginning? It's like, but we do see Jesus, right? <laughs> um, um, there in Hebrews. And, and I think that that's it. Um, we see Jesus and and we get a glimpse into the character of God and we get a glimpse into the kind of ways that God works, right? So 
when when people talk about this mean, angry God that's death dealing and just wants to punish people. That's a lie. And I'm like, ah, but we see Jesus yeah. and it seems like he's for life. He's life giving and mm. he's healing and restoring and empowering. And, and, and so we get a very different vision of who God is and how God works. And then from that, that's how I understand how the spirit is at work in the world, that, that God's spirit is also then healing and restoring and loving and encouraging people to stand up and speak for truth, right? Because it's congruent with the very life and character of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so um, for me, that that's how I would answer that question. Yeah, no, I like that. Put people in the right spot. They, they hear this, they wanna do something, they wanna learn more about you, they wanna buy all of your books available where all the good books are sold. Like, where would you direct people to? Where are you active, you know, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. So first, um, you can find um, both of my books are available, um, one for pre-order. Um, so Trouble I've Seen is available anywhere books are sold. Um, Who Will Be a Witness Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love and Deliverance? That is available for pre-order and it's going to be releasing soon. And so if you want to make sure that you get the first batch coming out, um, uh, would pre-order now. And then, yeah, you can find me. I have a website, Drew, G-I, heart, H-A-R-T, Dot com and so they can find my website there there's a contact information that's where you know i get most of my speaking requests and stuff usually come through there not the way i did um, it. it's the way i should have yeah done not it. everyone but, <laughs> but that's a lot of it comes through there um and then um you can find me on the inverse podcast again jared mckenna and i uh from literally uh, opposite sides of the globe um just having really fascinating conversations with a wide variety of people from all over the world yeah around scripture and their stories and liberative readings of scripture. And it's just a lot of fun. And so we think it's unique and um, just adds a extra, you know, layer of good conversation on the, in the podcast world. And so definitely encourage people to do that. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at D R U H A R T drew Hart, And um, also I have a Facebook page that you can find me at as well. Yeah. Um, it's the one with the G I versus my regular profile. I think it's just Drew Hart, but <laughs> Drew G I Hart is my uh, Facebook profile page. To make those simple people listen, just hit pause, go down to the show notes, click whichever one you want to click on and then hit the the button, the like, the follow, the, the whatever the button you want to click is. Um, question about with Jared. So I don't even know what the time zone is because I think he's in New Zealand. Like, when do you actually talk to people? Because I know I've had to get up at like five in the morning to talk to people at lunchtime in London and like three in the morning to talk to people in South Africa. Like, how does that even logistically work? Yeah. Like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So he's in Australia. He's in Australia. Same time zone though, right? He's exactly 12 hours apart. So one of you is talking at midnight or two in the morning. So usually, no. So what it is, is we usually, um, oftentimes it's around like 9 PM for me, um, on a Thursday, you know, and it'll be like Friday morning at 9 AM for him. Right. Um, and Ah. sometimes we flip it. So then it's me in the morning, but it's usually been me in the evening and him in the morning just because of our schedules. Hmm. Um, but we have had some tricky times, especially because of global guests. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. so we've had to adjust to do some stuff. So he's been up at like 3 AM. I think he's had it a little bit worse than I have overall, just (laughs) because of making it work for our guests. Nobody's keeping score. Um, but yeah, nobody's keeping score. <laughs> Don't tell Jared that um, that I'm getting um, the better hand of this often. Um, but yeah, so it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun, um, but it is also challenging in terms of scheduling. Yeah. I get it. Yeah, I have some of those same similar challenges here where I'm like, all right, so I work these hours and then the kids are here and then the pandemic has extra hours so I can either record after 9.15 on any day of the week or not at all. 
when I used to have a lot more flexibility. But um, yeah, I was just curious when you said, like, I don't, just logistically, how the heck does that work? But well, thanks again, Drew. I really enjoyed the conversation. I'd like to talk to you again sometime about whatever we want to talk about, uh, if you're willing. But yeah, um, thanks so much for coming on the show. I've really enjoyed the conversation and I, I genuinely look forward to your book. I mean, I'm just going to go right to the to the chapter on um, on Barabbas just because, yeah, yeah, that's what, and then I'll go back. So. It's a fun, it's one of my, it's probably my favorite chapter. Really? So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, well, good. Well, thanks again for coming on. Appreciate it. Yep, all right, take care. keep getting struck by the political balance between Barabbas and Jesus Christ. I am both at times. So are you. And I've never thought about it that way. If there's anything that I've wrestled with the most, it's been the Luke 19 passage. If I only understood, and that version of Christ as Barabbas. At recording, uh, Drew's book came out a few days ago, and I immediately jumped to that chapter, and it is illuminating, and it's fascinating. And uh, oh, so good. So, so good. I am so thankful for people like Drew doing this work. There are many that stand alongside him because this work is extremely valuable. I'm also extremely thankful for people like Olivia Georgia that would allow me to use her music into this week's episode. Those tracks are called Be Still, Every Rise, Every Fall, and Remains. You can find links to her, Drew, the book, all of the places that you need to be in the show notes or at the website for the podcast or at the website for the podcast, and you can listen to those tracks on the Spotify playlist for the show. Consider supporting the show on Patreon. Rate and review. I'm so thankful for you all. It's going to be a heavy few months. I feel it. Just everything with school, and it's going to be heavy. So stay safe. Remember that you're loved. Talk to you next week. stood up to dance they were all so confused given my circumstance i knew i couldn't explain but i gave it another chance the